is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand. Welcome to the Country Hour. Today we check out Wellard's plan to build a new live export ship, which it says will be the first in the world capable of running on green fuels. Whoever builds a new ship will be in a very good position in 10 years' time uh, because they will be uh, um, uh, an efficient ship running the right fuel with very limited competition. So that's why we see the opportunity. There's a large bushfire to the west of Earl Dunda as we go to air this afternoon. We're aiming to bring you an update on that blaze very soon. And in a moment, we'll be chatting to the Chief Executive of the NT Livestock Exporters Association, who's in Ho Chi Minh City this afternoon. How is the Vietnam market looking for NT Live Exports? We'll find out soon. We are broadcasting across the Territory on the ABC. G'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. First up today, a 47-year-old man has died after his R-22 helicopter crashed near Remenginin in Arnhem Land yesterday. Dan Fitzgerald joins me in the studio with some more details. What can you tell us, Dan? Well, Matt, NT Police say uh, they received reports of a helicopter crash at about 2.45 yesterday afternoon. And uh, heading out there, a 47-year-old man was declared deceased at the scene. Uh, The Australian Transport Safety Bureau has commenced investigations into this crash, uh, which it says destroyed the helicopter. Uh, Chief Commissioner Angus Mitchell said in a statement, uh, the ATSB is deploying a team of transport safety investigators from our Perth and Canberra offices to the accident site to begin evidence collection as part of this investigation. Um, And over the coming days, investigators will survey and map the accident site and collect any relevant components for further examination. Uh, They will also obtain and review any recorded data, weather information, witness reports and aircraft operator procedures and maintenance records. Um, ATSB expects a preliminary report into the crash to uh, be released in about six to eight weeks. Okay, that's the latest from the ATSB. The name has not been released just yet of the pilot. And not publicly, no. Yeah, not publicly. There's a lot of people hurting in the top end this afternoon. Thank you for the update, Dan, and I'm sure we'll hear more in the coming days. G'day, this is Chris Nathaniel at Tropiculture Australia Bees Creek, and you're listening to The Country Hour. The ASX-listed company Wellard is looking to add a new vessel to its fleet of live export ships called the Ocean Gillaroo. It will cost around $60 million US dollars to build and will be the first live export ship in the world capable of running on green fuels. But as Executive Chairman of Wellard, John Klepek, explains, there's been a few hurdles in the way to getting this built. No, it hasn't been built yet and we've put the plans on hold um, probably for 12 to 18 months. But we've progressed it uh, and the people here would have seen, we've got the graphics of it, etc. It is, uh, takes into account all the latest technology that's available. And importantly, uh, on the fuel side of things, as the shipping industry moves into a um, limiting carbon emissions, uh, the ship will have to uh, uh, operate on different fuels. That is not uh, clear at the moment. You know, um, LNG is the main one that, that is being used in the shipping world at the moment as an alternative fuel, but that's a, that's a transition fuel, not, 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 not to the end point. But we've progressed that. Um, and, and what is the end point, sorry, for fuel? 
something that doesn't emit a carbon, I suppose. Uh, Green hydrogen or something like that? Yeah, quite possibly, uh, quite possibly. But uh, w- when you go into that, the, the one, the commerciality of that is not there yet, and there needs to be supplies of the fuel around the world to be able to fuel those ships. Uh, we do very long hauls, uh, you know, South America to, to China as an example. You need to have the supply at the port as you currently have with bunker around the world. So there's a whole infrastructure, whatever fuel that ends up being. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, all the big shipping companies in the world are spending vast amounts of money uh, progressing this, but there is no right now today, if we, uh, we push the button on the ocean, Jillaroo, it'll be uh, operating on, on a dual fuel a basis with the uh, ability to be able to convert at a low cost to whatever fuel it ends up being. So you, you need to keep the options open as that as that technology progresses and a new fuel is found. Um, as you say, plans are sort of paused at the moment. It's not easy getting the ship built right now. Tell us about that. No, and, and that's the reason why we paused it. Um, at the moment, uh, uh, because of what's happened uh, with the uh, world shipping in terms of the uh, container ships, huge demand. The shipping companies placed vast amounts of orders, so all the shipyards in the world are at capacity and have got forward order books of you know many months. So to come to them with a bespoke product like a livestock carrier and say, yes, we want this one-off ship built, there's just no appetite from most of the shipyards in the world. And you need several shipyards to step forward. We have one or two that are interested, but unless there's competitive tension, you're not going to get the commercial outcome that's desirable and, it, and the overlay on top of that one uh, so you got the um, lack of capacity for shipyards to be able to build the ship uh, this, um, the second thing is the sh- um, price of steel uh, which has moderated uh, recently but when we were out there getting quotes for the ship the price of steel had hit, hit some peaks and that's, that's a major part of, obviously that's a major part of a ship uh, so if you have the, the major raw cost at all time highs and you have shipyards not willing to do the work because they've got multiples of of the same ship which they can punch out pretty quickly at, at good margins uh, it's not a, uh, the conducive, atmo- uh, conducive market for a ship but having said all that these things do change as quick as the, the shipyards got full they can become empty again and, and they will change so we're in a monitoring situation In general are there many new live export vessels getting built? None. Um, the last uh, we had one uh, that was started to be built at the, uh, the Ocean Kelpie, which is uh, where we had the uh, um, we got the refund guarantee because the shipyard went broke. That's um, um, uh, the Ulyanik guys in um, in Croatia, and uh, at the same time, KLTT were also building a ship which uh, has been scrapped as well. Um, so there was two ships in that particular yard being built at the same time. Uh, large carriers, um, you know, 15,000 square metre plus, but both of them, uh, the shipyard fell over, and to my knowledge, there's no one else in the market that is currently uh, building a ship. So the last new ship purpose-built carrier was the Ocean Shearer, which is now um, the Al Kuwait uh, we sold to KLTT, and that was uh, built in 2016. So you've had a gap now, what, six years, and if you add another couple of years on for uh, a new build if you started today, so you've got an eight-year gap since a, since a new ship. And What do you think that means for all cattle and sheep producers listening? What it means, whoever builds a new ship will be in a very good position in 10 years' time uh, because they will be uh, um, a, an efficient ship running the right fuel with very limited competition. So that's why we see the opportunity. Um, but, you know, the ship... Uh, and we've said it often enough, um, 
the age of the uh, uh, livestock carriers across the world is excessively high. It's the uh, second oldest fleet in the world. Um, you know, the average age is over double a container ship. There's uh, many ships out there. Uh, these are, uh, luckily, they don't come, uh, they don't come to Australia because they're not AMSA approved. That, quite frankly, should be on the beach, uh, cut up. You know, you know, they just shouldn't be in, in the market. So, as time goes on, they get older. Uh, a new ship coming in will have limited competition because all the other ships will have aged that period of time as well. Wellard finances have, have been improving over the last few years. The cost of building a new ship, what does that do to the budget? Well, we won't be. Uh, we will be looking at a, an alternative funding uh, a model for the new ship. I.e., we will not be borrowing um, the money that's required to build the ship and taking it on uh, the risk on all ourselves. The industry is a spot market for volume and a spot market for price, and to expect a um, a company to to put a, a huge capital cost uh, spend it on without any guarantees of any returns is just not uh, feasible. So we will be looking to those who benefit from the trade the most uh, to participate in a uh, SPV uh, um, funding vehicle where they will they will fund the ship. We will have a share in it, but we will be the operator of the ship, uh, not the 100% owner of the ship. And so finally, tell us a little bit more about the Ocean Jillaroo. When she eventually gets up and going, can you tell our radio audience a bit more of, of what it will look like, how many head, all that type of stuff? Well... <laughs> It's still because it's not... I, I don't want to go too, too much into detail because... The picture looks so good, John. Yeah, yeah, the picture looks... Yeah, the picture's fantastic. But, you know, look, we're looking around the... You know, in terms of size, uh, it's not as big as a, a Drover, but it's bigger than our, our, our other ship. Uh, so you'd say it's a large carrier, 15, 14, 15,000 square metres. It will have the ability to uh, travel, you know, do the la- uh, large distances from South America to, um, to Asia um, with, uh, you know... Um, with fuel, no, no, no stopping for an extra fuel, uh, enough um, fodder on board for the uh, for the number of cattle. Depending if it's a breeder cattle, it'd be a, a smaller load than uh, if if it was a feeder cattle. Uh, but the the other things, you know, there's a whole myriad of things, you know, in terms of the technology, you know, the the cruising speed, the fuel, as as we spoke about before. So there's a lot there. Um, it looks, uh, you know. The fact that we've even got a name for it is, you know, we shouldn't. I suppose we shouldn't be going out with a name before you actually build it. But, but it is. It is also part about educating the the, the market of where we intend to go with this. When the when the shipyard is available, etc., we do intend to launch because, look, fundamentally, uh, although the markets are the slaughter and um, feeder markets into Indonesia and Vietnam are pretty bad at the moment and will continue to be bad for another you know four to six months we're optimistic of the future for the industry we do see uh, a, um, a return to volumes and when that re- uh, volume returns we intend to be the major operator from australia into those markets the executive chairman of wellard john klepek and according to wellard's promotional video the ocean jillaroo will be capable of exporting around 11,000 head of cattle. And just a little correction, the last purpose-built livestock vessel was actually the Aurochs, which was built in 2017. It's 19 to 1. You are tuned into the Country Hour. On the topic of live exports, the chief executive of the NT, Livestock Exporters Association, is over in Vietnam this week. We'll be catching up with Tom Dawkins next after some cold chisel. Shipping steel, shipping steel. 
right across the territory on the ABC. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Tom Dawkins is the chief executive of the NT Livestock Exporters Association and is in Vietnam this week as part of a territory government delegation. And he's in Ho Chi Minh City this afternoon. Tom, tell us about this trip and what you're doing. Thank you, Matt. Very pleased to be back in Vietnam. Um, David Connolly from the NT Cattlemen's Association and I um, are doing a lot of renewing um, friendships with customers in Vietnam um, alongside uh, representatives of the the NT government that are doing um, a range of um, uh, work here across more broadly than just uh, the cattle sector. But wonderful to be back here. We've got pretty strong, enduring friendships here in Vietnam. It's it's a different shape uh, in terms of the live cattle trade than um, Indonesia. In the territory, um, you know, 80% we focus on Indonesia, but uh, uh, the the cattle that come to the territory uh, from the territory up here, they they tend to be bigger, uh, older animals, ready for slaughter. So, and and it has become a really important, important market cattle. over the last few years. But um, yeah, just in recent times, this is a market that has has really fallen over for the Australian cattle industry. What's your understanding up there on yeah. on what's happening? Yeah, the price of Australian cattle, I think, but it's the price of all cattle. Um, we're in a, a real regional ecosystem here in terms of cattle because they do move in uh, regionally from within Vietnam and across the Laos and Cambodian border. Um, a lot of beef um, product is um, drawn into China um, typically. That's disrupted at the moment because of China's closed border policy. Um, so that's that has uh, clogged up the market here a bit. But cattle are expensive. Australian cattle are probably at the, the pointier end of of that. Uh, and you know there, there's still some animals coming through. We've seen a, a pretty a good lineup of um, of top end uh, bulls yesterday. They're, they're they're struggling with the volume, but we're aware that if um, if we get um, the supply chain here. Moving again, if China starts taking product um, from from this region, um, that that will create a bit of a vacuum for us to, to fill. And is, know, is it as simple as that, Tom? If the, the price of Australian cattle fall, Vietnam will be back in the market to buy. The, the more that that price eases, and we we just want it to find a sustainable footing, then that gives them greater scope to operate because it's one of the many factors. You know, feeders here are, are facing the same very high um, fodder prices that everyone else is experiencing, and they're they're exposed to the, the spike in you know feed grain uh, prices that everyone else is too. So it's one of the factors, a mm. uh, high price. But the fact is, from the Northern Territory in particular, we know that we simply don't have uh, large uh, volumes of of uh, suitable cattle at the moment that fit into the, the Vietnam trade. Having said that, there's been a few shipments. Um, producers, you know, going down uh, just about to Alice Springs uh, are, are good at um, servicing uh, this uh, this trade. Um, and uh, it, it's a, it is an important one for the Territory. And it's one we want to um, continue to foster because it's, it's fair to say it's low tide at the moment. But we know that uh, things will change, and 
and and the ability to send the uh, the heavier animal represents the opportunity for the producer to to value add uh, to the animal set, send a send a higher yielding animal and and have an extra market option. Um, whereas Indonesia will continue to be you know a, a feeder cattle uh, market, and so it's, it's just a very good thing. As we're getting, there, there, there's uh, been a lot of investment in Vietnam over the years. Tom, are those are those feedlots sitting empty at the moment? What what's their capacity like? No, they those businesses rely on on throughput, so they they've obviously dialed down their numbers. They're not running at capacity, which is similar to what we're we're seeing uh, in in other markets and, and parts of Australia. So they do keep the engine running, but certainly closer to an idle at the moment than uh, than a full rev. Is a big difference between Vietnam and Indonesia that Indonesia doesn't have as many options to source stock. The, the Vietnam operators can get cattle from elsewhere a bit easier. That's right. It's, it is a, um, there's great similarities, but um, we, we're in a different uh, uh, market here and the, the nature of the competition and the place in which our cattle find themselves um, landing is, is a different scenario because they, they may be fed alongside local animals or Lao Cambodian animals. And even you know, the timely discussion up here has been on biosecurity because we are attached to continental Asia here um, and uh, our customers in Vietnam have had probably a 12-month head start in terms of lumpy skin disease in responding to that. And FMD um, has also been um, a part of their, their risk radar for, for a longer period than, um, than in Indonesia uh, has too. So the lessons we're drawing from our, our partnerships here have, have been really important in the last six months and they'll continue to be because they've shown that they can continue to be um, commercially viable and uh, maintain the, the health of animals, uh, even with uh, with some disease threats, um, you know, enduring as they as they continue to move animals around. So you're feeling confident about the future of that market. We're always optimistic um, and upbeat, but yeah, as soon as we see some changes in 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 the supply scenario, as that herd is rebuilding, this this will continue to be. A very important part of the, the suite of markets that Northern Australia uh, supplies, and um, you know it, it, it's an exciting place um, to, to be doing business with, um, and a you know and very very important friend to, to to Northern Territory. So we are upbeat, and they're wonderful people to be visiting again, and and um, and to maintaining those friendships with. Thanks for your time this afternoon, and uh, watch out for the traffic, Tom. Thank you, Matt. Tom Dawkins, who is the Chief Executive of the NT Livestock Exporters Association and is in Vietnam this week. Such an important market for the Territory's cattle and buffalo industries, but as mentioned, a market that has been in decline. If we look at some of the numbers here, in 2020, Vietnam bought almost 300,000 head of cattle from Australia. Last year, that basically halved to about 160,000 head, and this year, well, it will be even lower. I haven't got the year-to-date stats on me, but uh, just 2,500 head shipped to Vietnam in October. It's been a very quiet year indeed for that trade.
G'day, I'm Angus Gidley-Baird. I'm the Senior Animal Proteins Analyst with Rabobank and you're listening to The Country Hour. Well, for those in the live export trade and the cattle industry, this one will be of interest. After successfully importing a live sample of lumpy skin disease to Australia, the CSIRO has flagged an interest in importing foot and mouth disease live virus for research into vaccines. But of course, the process from here is complicated. Checks and balances would need to be in place before any of that could happen, as Megan Hughes reports. The Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness is a high-security lab in Geelong run by the CSIRO for diagnostics and research into exotic animal diseases. They've been at the front line of the fight to keep lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease out of Australia. Senior Principal Research Scientist Dr Vulna Fussler is involved in the work to create an mRNA vaccine for the diseases. She explained to the Senate Committee why they would need to import live virus. Initial testing for the FMD mRNA vaccine will be done here at ACDP, but it will not involve any live virus. So we will be looking at the serological responses um, against that vaccine. And Senator, maybe if you don't mind me just adding that mRNA is one platform of um, vaccine development. Um, there are other platforms that we could potentially work on as well. And a big limitation for us is the fact that even if we work on platforms and we design something new, um, the difficulty in doing the full range of testing that you would need to do is limited by the fact that we don't have access to the live virus. So we will have to go elsewhere if we want to test the the vaccine. And the ultimate ultimate test for a vaccine is to, to challenge the animals and see that they are indeed protected. And that is the step that we can't do. Dr Vulna Fulslub. According to the Federal Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, no import permit application has been made. While there are vaccines available for both lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease, mRNA vaccines are considered cheaper and quicker to produce because they're synthetic and don't require animal or microbial products, unlike traditional vaccines. But bringing in a live virus increases the risk of an outbreak in Australia. FMD in particular is a highly infectious disease with a range of potential transmissions. Dr Chris Parker from DAV explains what would need to happen if an import permit was sought. Currently, the importation of foot and mouth disease virus is prohibited without an import permit issued under the Biosecurity Act. Also, if it was to go to ACTP, ACDP in Victoria, my understanding is, is it'd need a permit under a Victorian Act as well, the Livestock Disease Control Act. But obviously before uh, we would issue an import permit, I would anticipate a very similar process to what went on with the importation of live LSD virus into the country would go on. And that would be an assessment of the ACDP facilities to ensure that they meet the absolute highest, most current standards that are around for the importation of and the holding of such a, uh, um, such a virus. Um, I would remind you that there are places in the world where there has been escapes from the facilities. I'm not suggesting that that would occur from ACDP, but of course we would have to ensure that facilities were absolutely top-notch before we'd even contemplate doing something like this. I would anticipate the Minister, like he did last time, would require 
the Inspector General of Biosecurity to run a risk assessment over it and run his eyes over the whole process before it was to proceed. But once all that is completed and we have a risk assessment and we're comfortable, we would be comfortable with the facilities at ACDP and that's an if at the moment, given the age of that facility, we would need to then issue an import permit and the virus could then be imported. There would likely, as there are with LSD, a whole range of conditions on that import permit around the purity, around the way it's kept, about what can be done with it, all those sorts of things. And I would be simply speculating at this time as to what conditions it would come under. But I would just reiterate, there is no proposal at the moment to import FMD virus into Australia. And I certainly, as the area who would be doing the risk assessment, am not aware of anything in that, in, in that realm. That's Dr Chris Parker. Given the volatile nature of trade relationships, importing live virus could have an impact. Nicola Hinder, Acting Deputy Secretary of the Agricultural Trade Group within DAF, says it would need to be approached in a careful and considered way. We would either need to predicate that with a very large communication targeted strategy and campaign to our trading partners to actually explain the basis upon which we were importing the virus. Now, be that for scientific technical assessment purposes, be it for preventative nature, that really wouldn't matter. There will be some trading partners that would automatically jump to the immediate assumption that because Australia has imported the virus, we effectively have the virus and so therefore we're looking for the vaccine. And so sometimes those are the much harder um, perceptions to be able to counteract by communication. That is Nicola Hinder, who is with the Federal Department of Agriculture. Hi, my name's Savannah Phillip. I work at Humtadoo Barramundi. We're currently feeding thousands of baby Barramundi right now, and you're listening to the Country Hour. It is a Wednesday lunchtime, and there's a lot going on. Making international news this afternoon, Donald Trump has announced his intention to run for US President in 2024. I'll share some of his speech with you in the second half of the program. And making far more local news, Northern Territory Parks and Wildlife have just announced that Berry Springs has closed for swimming this wet season. It says we managed to stay open a couple of weeks longer than expected, but water quality and clarity is now too poor to allow access for swimming. There is no crocodile management while access to the water is closed, so please stay out, is the message this afternoon from Northern Territory Parks and Wildlife. Berry Springs closed for swimming for the wet season. I'll see you back here in five minutes for a chat with the Weather Bureau, but it's now news time on your ABC, one o'clock. Uh, G'day, this is Vin Yuen from TV Farms in Sydney Markets and you're listening to The Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. In a moment we'll be speaking to Bushfires NT to get the latest on a large blaze in central Australia. This is a fire that's impacting a couple of cattle stations. It's sort of on the northern side of the road out to Uluru. Uh, We'll learn more about that in a moment. interesting times. In American politics, Donald Trump has just announced his intention to run for president in 2024. He's just wrapped up that speech. I'll share just a little bit with you in a moment. And the immediate reaction from Joe Biden. 
Before all of that, let's go to the Weather Bureau. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon. How are you, Beck? I'm um, good, thank you, Matt. Uh, look at the radar this afternoon. Little storms popping up across the top end, it seems. Yeah, pretty much. Um, a bit of uh, wet stuff falling from the sky right throughout the Territory. Um, so, yeah, storms at the moment are across the northern half, uh, particularly in the Gregory District. Um, we have seen fairly active um, conditions right throughout the day so far. So um, we did issue a severe thunderstorm warning this morning for heavy rainfall from a storm um, that affected uh, Dashwood Crossing. Um, they've had a fair bit of rainfall. Up to 9am it was 94.5 millimetres and then wow. they've had a, a further 10 millimetres since then. So, um, yes, yeah, some uh, decent rainfall falling through that area. Um, also um, seeing some storms at the moment over Arnhem District, Tiwi Islands, um, northern parts of the, the Barclay as well. Um, and a bit of a cloud band further south across the um, the southern parts of the Territory, um, just bringing some, mainly some just light rain um, through those areas at the moment. Beautiful. What's, uh, what's the forecast for the next few days for the Territory? More of this? Um, yeah, more or less. Um, we are expecting showers and storms right throughout the Territory for the next few days. Um, uh, we've got a trough over West Australia um, that's drawing that moisture in a bit more of a northerly flow over the next few days, so bringing that moisture from the tropics southwards. Um, so we are seeing those showers and storms continuing. Um, also a continued risk of severe thunderstorms. So um, uh, in the northern parts, um, more that heavy rainfall due to those storms being quite slow moving. Um, but there is also a, uh, a risk of um, uh, damaging winds with storms, um, probably more like from Friday um, in the southern areas, uh, as uh, those storms in the south could be a bit more quickly moving. Okay. So that's Friday. Keep an eye out then. Yes. Later in the week. Yep. Um, have we got uh, some more rainfall figures maybe, Beck, that we can share with the audience for the 24-hour period? Because there's some decent ones there. Yeah, there are. Um, so, yeah, the Dashwood Crossing was the, the highest one to 9am, um, but also up there, um, Channel Point with 71 millimetres, uh, Darwin River Dam with 51 millimetres, uh, Nipmaluk Ridge with 47 millimetres, so pretty widespread rainfall um, in that sort of 30 upwards. Even um, the metropolis range. of Rabbit Flat got 17 millimetres. Yeah, yeah, so they had um, some decent storms go through the Tanami district yesterday afternoon. Mm. Um, we had a, a um, severe gust actually at Rabbit Flat, 91 kilometres per hour with those line of storms that went through there. So, um, yeah, there is still a little bit of wind through those central districts as well with any storms down through there. Yep. And we're just about to have a chat to Bushfires NT about uh, a large blaze in central Australia, sort of west of Earl Dunder. What are conditions like there this afternoon in terms of temperature and winds? Yeah, um, so probably not too bad for, for fighting fires because it, it is quite overcast with a little bit of light rain around. Um, so, yeah, that's 
good. Um, winds are northeasterly through that area at the moment, not too strong. Um, uh, and the temperature's not too high either. Um, you okay. are at the moment just over 20 degrees. Beauty. And potentially just a little bit of light rain in that country? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. So, yep. Which would just be beautiful and very well timed. All right then, thanks so much. No worries. Thanks, Matt. This week on Landline, we go mining for the crucial fertiliser phosphate. This is basically the old inland sea. Millions and millions of years of uh, sedimentary runoff. The phosphorus is basically mixed up with clays from the inland sea. And earning money for carbon captured in soil. I'd like to know every kilo of beef that I've put on the animals, how much carbon we're putting back in the soil. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Yeah, so as we go to air this afternoon, there's a number of fires burning across central Australia. The biggest one by far, though, is on Palmer Valley and Mount Ebenezer stations. So this is just to the northern side of the road, out to Uluru. We're joined this afternoon by Andrew Turner from Bushfires NT. What can you tell us uh, about this fire to the west of Earl Dunder, Andrew? Uh, thanks, Matt. Uh, yeah, the fire's uh, been going for close to a week now. It started uh, around the 9th um, with a, a series of um, storms that passed through the area and we believe it was probably lightning strikes that um, that got it going. Um, it's been milling around. We had some stronger winds early on in the piece which um, got it to its uh, pretty well its current size and it's just been uh, continuing on. Um, there's no active management uh, uh, by certainly by bushfires NT at the moment. The landowners are, uh, are also keeping a watch on it um, and we're hopeful for uh, some easing winds over the next couple of days um, so it'll it'll sort of um, work back in on itself. Um, this, this fire's still going, um, certainly uh, out west of Yulara, there's still a, a fire that uh, is, is even more sizeable than that um, the Ebenezer one. Um, and we've also got fires at Alcuda and uh, just south of Uindamu. Uh, and there's also one out at, um, well, sort of south of the uh, Kintor Range um, out to the west there. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if you heard the back end there sort of Rebecca Patrick at the Weather Bureau, but sounds like, yeah, conditions are a bit more favourable and hopefully you jag a little bit of rain as well. Yeah, we're hopeful of that. There is a, there is a bit of a spike on Saturday where some uh, warmer conditions and uh, some gusty uh, conditions, but mostly in the Simpson where um, the fuel load's obviously less than uh, elsewhere across the, the centre. Um, so, yeah, and it looks like a fairly short-lived uh, event as well. So uh, unlikely to be a fire ban at this stage, but um, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Um, as I said, there's five or six fires in the centre and there's still fires burning at uh, Mataranka and, and out in the VRD at uh, Delamere that, that we're uh, monitoring as well. We've been unable to get onto Mount Ebenezer Station, probably because they're out fighting a fire. But are you, have you got a sense on how many hectares has been lost and have you heard any stories on, on any infrastructure damage? No, we haven't heard, uh, had any reports of any uh, infrastructure being damaged or, or livestock affected. Um, that's not to say there there hasn't been any. We just haven't uh, cleaned that information yet. Um, we've, our main concern was, um, you know, the fire when it's uh, uncontained, you know, there's outstations out that way that uh, could could well be affected but we're satisfied that that the residents out there are aware of the uh, the incident and um, you know there's no great risk to us at this stage we'll continue to monitor that situation what's your take on the fire threat going forward for central australia this year 
Um, certainly with the uh, the rain that we've had over the last couple of seasons and the build-up of um, the vegetative fuel, um, there will be fire activity. We're seeing uh, a pretty uh, intense period at the moment. Um, closer to uh, Christmas, we're expecting uh, continuing uh, rainfall, um, which will sort of uh, continue with the, the threat, I guess, uh, and hopefully well, there there is a hope uh, that uh, you know coming into winter we'll have opportunity to do some more um, mitigation burning um, before next season strikes off. But uh, I'd suggest there's going to be increased levels of fire activity certainly uh, than what we've seen over the last five or six years um, over the next twelve months. Okay, thank you for your time this afternoon, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Thanks, man. That is Andrew Turner from Bushfires NT. It is fourteen past one here on the Country Hour. Hi, I'm Sophie. I work at Monsoon Aquatics and I love working with giant clams. You're listening to Country Hour. Oh dear, oh dear. So I've got one message here that says, Matt, the news about Berry Springs closing is far more important than Trump. And someone else here says, please don't waste time at taxpayers' expense on Trump. Please stick to the country hour. Oh dear, oh dear. I promise I'll keep it quick. I'll keep it real quick. It's big international news this afternoon. It really is. So Donald Trump has announced he's running to be the US president in 2024. A moment ago, he wrapped up an hour-long speech to his supporters in Florida. We won't share the one hour with you. We'll share 40 seconds. Here's a listen. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. I am running because I believe the world has not yet seen the true glory of what this nation can be. We have not reached that pinnacle, believe it or not. In fact, we can go very far. We're going to have to go far. First, we have to get out of this ditch And once we're out, you'll see things that nobody imagined for any country. It's called the United States of America, and it's an incredible place. Donald Trump today announcing his intention to run for U.S. president in 2024. Pretty much as soon as he made that announcement, President Joe Biden's Twitter account put out a video regarding Donald Trump. It was headlined, Donald Trump failed America. Let's have a listen. Nobody has ever done what we've done in the last four years. Their entire economic plan, tax cuts for the rich and corporations. And record-breaking unemployment. The worst jobs report on record. Trump is the only modern president to leave office with fewer jobs than when he took office. The Trump administration formally asking the Supreme Court to overturn the Affordable Care Act. This could leave up to 23 million Americans without coverage. I hope that they end. You also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Do you believe in punishment for abortion, yes or no? There has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. And if I win, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons. It is big international news. You can read more about it via the ABC News website right now. G'day, I'm Bill West. Uh, I've been skippering trawlers in the NPF for 43 years and you're listening to The Country Hour.
tugboat crews across Australia will today learn whether the Fair Work Commission will allow their employer to lock them out of their workplace indefinitely from Friday. This is the result of a long-running industrial dispute between maritime unions and Danish tugboat giant Svitzer. Svitzer says it has lost work at three ports in the last 12 months and claims industrial action has run to nearly 2,000 hours of work stoppages. The Maritime Union of Australia National Secretary Paddy Crumlin claims the company is trying to starve out its workforce. So you're talking about, you know, the big ports, um, iron ore, coal, LNG, um, then you're talking about terminals, you know, the containers coming in and coming out, ports in Queensland, New South Wales, the largest towage company. And so, yeah, they're vertically and horizontally integrated through all of uh, shipping services because of the – which makes their behaviour that much more odious. We've had industrial action, but it's been oh, with the deft hand and a light hand. They say it's 2,000 hours. Oh, really? You know, that's a – it's not. It's part of the sort of the Trumpism of their PR to – demonise what's going on there. All, all this happened over four years and it's gradually built up. We've done it all under the auspices of the fair work. So you say and that uh, Svitzer's claim that there's been 2,000 hours of work stoppages um, through industrial action is is rubbish. What do you think that figure rubbish. would be? Uh, it, it's not much at all. They, they, it's like some of it's overtime bans sometimes. It's never designed to hurt the movement of ships. And if someone doesn't want to settle on on something, you know, if they want to pick a fight, then um, how do you move them? But you haven't kept a tally. You can't tell me how many hours of industrial action your members have taken. Ah, because, oh, well, they, they say 2,000 hours, but, you know, that's like a cumulative over so long. It's very little, mate. You know, it's not real. It's just like they won't do an extension in one port. It's been nothing that has held up the productivity of the country. It might have been an annoyance to them, but it's done with a light hand, a light touch, because it's not the point of hurting the economy. It's the point of bringing them back to the table so they bargain in good faith. Again, it's so little has never, ever been an issue. I'm keen to get into some of the delays that this will cause. What agricultural products are we talking about here that could be delayed and, and how long could they be delayed for? Well, it depends how militant they want to be. They, they, they can just stop. They're locking out their workforce. They can't go to work to do their job. So... All of the shipping where there's a Spitzer tug in 17 ports will not be going anywhere. Uh, the seafarers aboard those ships will be held hostage to it. The ships outside will be held hostage to it. The uh, workforce can't access it, so it would affect much of the agricultural product. So what pay rises on the table here for your members or what uh, part of what Spitzer is offering um, is not palatable to you? No, it is palatable. All those things are largely resolved. They've just been – there might be a few little gaps about, you know, when it applies from, but they're brown in the low 
around the CPI. I think, you know, the and that's been running at about two percent. It's in that in that figure. There's never, like I say, if it was about wages, they'd be howling that. If if um, but they're not. They don't talk about that because there's basic agreement on on the material framework, and and it's consistent with community expectations. You know, um, obviously, the longer it goes on, the more inflation rises then the whole question then becomes more complex after four years. Maritime Union of Australia National Secretary Paddy Crumlin speaking to the country hours Peter Somerville. Switzer Australia, in a statement, says, We had hoped it would never come to a lockout, but we are at a point where we see no other option but to respond to the damaging industrial action underway by the unions. Now, what does this mean for the Northern Territory, I hear you say? Well, Switzer does run eight tugboats in Darwin Harbour. The Country Hour has been told, though, that this action should not affect operations at the Darwin port because they're on a different employment agreement. That's what the Country Hour has been told. We will wait and see that decision by the Fair Work Commission due out later today, if all goes to plan. So there's one to keep an eye on. I see in a statement from Grain Growers Limited, uh, it's watching this closely and says, unless action is taken, efficient export-focused industries like grains would suffer long-term damage, impacting Australia's reputation as a trusted trading partner. They say this year growers have been already hammered by wet weather, severely damaged roads and transport infrastructure. To have a shipping dispute on top of this Potentially stopping harvest exports is an unnecessary burden on Australian trade. An important story, one to keep an eye out on. On the topic of grains, the biggest grain handler in the East, Grain Corp, has put out its yearly financial results today. And as expected, there's some big numbers. There really are. Grain Corp's net profit after tax sits at $380 million, which is up from $139 million the previous year. The tonnes of grain handled by this company sits at 41.1 million tonnes, up from 34.4 the year prior. Its share price, though, down 3.69% as we go to air this afternoon. Our top story today was the tragic news that a 47-year-old man has died after his R-22 helicopter crashed near Remanginning in Arnhem Land yesterday. The Australian Transport Safety Bureau is investigating. I'm sure there'll be more details to share with you in the coming days. That's it for today's Country Hour. Keep it rural.